another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spear doing another edition of the Survival Podcast. And as always, one day has to do with the changing times, the changing world, and the things we can all do with a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, dictate it differently today, I'm at home in the home office. And we're going to do a listener feedback slash question show. I've got some stuff I want to uh, answer and talk about that's come in from readers and or listeners. And uh, it, it's not that the answers are complex and I can't answer them in the car. It's just the questions, some of them, not all of them, but some of the ones I'm going to talk about today and some of the things that I've gotten as feedback today are kind of long, and I can't really read it in the car. I have to keep my eyes on the road. So I've saved up a few like that and some other questions that have just come in this week. I thought, since I'm home today, this would be a cool show to do. Before that, though, let's go ahead and knock out some housekeeping. Uh, number one, uh, if you're interested in, in paying attention, uh, this Saturday evening, I believe starting at 8 o'clock Eastern Time, uh, the podcast awards ceremony is going to be going on. You can see if we've won or not. Uh, since we're in the general category, I think we'll get announced pretty late in the night. I don't know how long this thing's going to take. And it, it just so happens that I have my uh, family Christmas party going on that day. So I'll be walking around once they start with an earpiece in, uh, waiting until, uh, until my, my t- turn comes up. And to be, I guess, fair or not fair to the other podcasters, not really paying attention to their categories. Um, but anyway, if you want to check that out, that's going to be on uh, Saturday evening. If you have nothing else to do with your Saturday evening, which you probably do. Uh, but then you'll find out uh, Monday morning uh, if we've won or not. Next on the housekeeping, make sure you're taking care of our sponsors. They do a lot of lot to support the show, and that helps us bring it to you every single day of the week, except for Saturdays and Sundays. Everybody has to rest sometimes. Um, sponsor of the day number one today is Safe Castle Royal. Uh, Safe Castle Royal has everything the prepper could possibly need. Some really cool stuff. Really cool uh, stuff for for 12 volt stuff as well. Uh, 12 volt appliances and things like that for you guys that have a solar or a wind uh, hair up your rear end. And uh, they also have a, a tremendous deal on, on a lot of things through their uh, discount club, which is $29, and then it's a lifetime membership. And that's awesome. It's a great deal. It's well worth the 29 bucks. But if you become a member support brigade member, that's just one of the benefits you'll get for free. I'll tell you more about MSB in just a second. Sponsor of the day in number two today, Tactical Response Gear, James Yeager's operation. Um, tactical Response Gear has been called uh, the, the tactical equivalent of a crack store for an addict. There's just so much cool stuff there. You can spend a day just going through everything on the site and finding really cool stuff you never even thought of. And I would suggest to you one of the things you consider taking a look at on James's website, again, uh, tacticalresponsegear.com, is the training DVDs. If you can't get to his actual training in Camden or in some of the training classes that he runs around the country, check out things like fighting pistol, fighting rifle, fighting shotgun. Really great training. The DVDs are outstanding. I've watched many of them myself. I've learned a lot from them. Okay, with that, let's move on. Next, make sure you get involved with our forum. Uh, our discussion forum is open to all, and uh, we would love to see you there, and I think you'll learn a lot. There's a tremendous amount of information there. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Two people won uh, the contest yesterday. Both of them just got their uh, free membership sent to them just before I started recording. Uh, yesterday, you could only pay, play if you were a YouTube subscriber. And you guys got to play in the contest, man. I know some of you have played a lot and you haven't won. Yesterday, only 48 people played. 
only 48, and uh, the contest is, contest is closed, so uh, don't send me any more YouTube contest things until we announce another one. Um, next, make sure you check out the gear store. we got cool stuff. I want to remind you, there's a special going on this week and this week only at the uh, TSP Gear Shop. It's a shirt, uh, a large decal, a small decal, a patch, and a challenge coin. Uh, for $10 less than if you bought them all individually. It's about a 25% savings. I told you I'd tell you what a challenge coin is later this week. A challenge coin started in the military, and it's kind of moved out into the realm of uh, law enforcement some, and some. I've seen it with fire departments and some other groups. And the way a challenge coin worked in the military is pretty simple. It was a symbol of your unit, where you were, that you were part of something. And as a fraternity among soldiers, uh, even within your unit or outside of your unit, as long as the other person was a soldier, um, what might happen is if we were at a bar together, I might use my challenge coin to issue a challenge. And what I would do is I'd pull out my coin that had my unit crest and all on it, and lay it down on the bar. And you look at it, and you know you're a soldier, and you know what the deal is. And you have two choices now. You either have your challenge coin on you, and you pull it out and lay it down next to mine. If you do that, you've successfully answered my challenge, and I have to buy a round of beer for both of us. If you do not have your coin on you, which you should, you should have your coin on you if you're a soldier, uh, and you don't, then you have to buy me a beer. And that was just kind of a fun thing that started out, and it was a way of identifying community. We've built a challenge coin for TSP. They're not going to ship till February. Even if you buy this thing, uh, you'll get all your stuff right away. You have to wait till February to get your coin because they're being minted right now. But they're really cool, really, really original designs. Suggest you check them out. Because I went long on that, and I knew it was going to be long, I'll just say today, with Member Support Brigade, if you... Uh, I think this show is worth more than 10 cents an episode, 20 cents an episode. Why am I saying that? Because of what's going to happen in January, I guess. Um, if you think the show's worth more than 10 cents an episode, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll get a bunch of free stuff. It's over $150 value. Your price, $5 a month or $50 a year. And with that, let's get on to the show. I've got some really great questions today. Um, let's start off with one that is uh, is a difficult one for me to answer because the information I have on this I don't have 100% verified. But I'll tell you what I've been told by people that work in the we fight the IRS on your side industry. And I, I don't know whether this is true or not because I've never had this big a problem with the IRS. And uh, because of that, I've never actually done these things, so I'm not sure. But the question comes from Joey. And Joey says, hey, what's your take on reducing IRS debt? He says, I know the obvious answer is get rid of it. Lots of companies offer settlements for pennies on the dollar when eliminating IRS debt. Have you heard of anyone getting a break? Any other tips for reducing IRS debt? Okay, I'm gonna t- again. I'm gonna I'm gonna pre- preface this with I'm not sure if this is true, but this is what I have been told: that an IRS agent that's in the collections business works with an operating quota, so to speak, over their head. That they're not even to take a case unless there's a sufficient amount of money owed to make it profitable. So just like a salesman might only take a deal if it's profitable to his company, the IRS agent going out and trying to collect on the deal will only take the deal if it's profitable to the government. Crazy as it sounds, it seems like the IRS may be the only thing that's run with a profit margin in mind in our government. I guess that's because it's the one place they collect money instead of spend it. 
So an agent would be highly unlikely if he saw something to take a case where he was going to collect a hundred bucks. Uh, that would be handled by an automated system, if at all, or it would be flagged and allowed to accumulate enough interest and penalties and then brought up two or three years later when maybe it's worth doing. But generally they go after bigger tickets. They have kind of a clock that starts when they start working a case. And as that clock winds, the value of that case declines because they've spent time and money and hours working it. And the longer they work it, the more desperate they'll become to get out of it at whatever is left of a profit for them, if we want to call it a profit. This sounds like extortion, doesn't it, folks? Like your mafia boss saying, hey, Jimmy, you go out and you collect, you make sure you collect profitable business, right? Um, <laughs> and that's what it is. But because of that, they're often willing to take a reduced payment. That's my understanding. And many times they're not willing to do a lot of forgiveness on the taxation itself, but they're willing to like wipe out the penalties and the interest and everything like that on sizable debts, but generally speaking, it has to be paid off in full. And this is where these companies make their money a lot of times. They will cut the deal with the IRS, you sign the deal, they pay the IRS for you and loan you the money and put you into a low-interest, low-interest loan. That's one way it's done. Or if you have the cash, they do it. They charge a fee. But, the, the, yes, you can cut deals with the IRS, believe it or not. I guess you could cut deals with Don Corleone, too. So it is possible. I don't have a company that I know is good or recommend or know is safe. But I do know it's possible. Um, I think if I was going to talk to anybody, it would probably be tax masters. Because they're big, they're nationwide, and they advertise on Dave Ramsey's show. And I think if they were scamming people, um, I don't think he they would be able to advertise on Dave Ramsey's show. But I'm not sure they're a direct advertiser. I just during the my lunchtime sometimes I listen to Dave and I hear that advertisement during his show. It may not be a direct relationship. It may be a network advertisement. I'm not sure. But I, I would maybe give those guys a shot at it. I wouldn't give anybody any money until they had results and I fully understood what they would do, how it would work. Um, but I would definitely look for a group of people that that says they have and you can verify they have former IRS agents uh, working for them. That's what most of these companies do. And I think that would be a unique inside. And if anybody knows anybody that does this for a living, that they'd like to get them on the air with me for an interview, I'd love to have somebody like this on the air. So there you go, Joey. Sorry it's not quite as definitive as I would like it to be for you, but that's the best I can do with it. And that's my understanding of how that system works, uh, at least right now. Let's take another uh, little bit of feedback. I'm going to switch gears here. This isn't a question. This is an email that was sent to me by someone I'll just call Chris. Uh, the email uh, subject line was, What TSP has meant to my family and me. I just want to say thank you for your podcast. I started listening in August of 2008. I was already on the road to being a modern survivalist, but your podcast didn't just turn on a light. It turned on a 6,000-watt uh, Xeon searchlight that said, This is the way. I followed your advice and eliminated all my debt except my mortgage, and that will be gone soon enough. When I was laid off in July, I told my boss, Thanks. Oh, I love that. I love that. I knew I was prepared. My family has been living off our garden. I received no government assistance. Um, we're, we're just hitting the store for milk, eggs, and such. 
don't have the need for assistance. I haven't even looked for a new job. I don't see the reason to right now. We've been doing just fine. I take odd jobs around town to get those eggs and milk. When I first started prepping, my wife thought I was nuts. She seems to have changed her tune. I received a recall for January. Time to start restocking. Recently joined the member support brigade. Great info there. Going to build a solar oven. Your stuffed dove recipe is out of this world. Better watch it. Something that good, and the government will probably try to tax it. I've got my 15-year-old nephew started listening to you now. Send him copies of all the old shows. Maybe he'll get a head start down the right path. His parents have 50k in credit card debt and pay on on the card so they can charge it back up. At least he will know there's another way. I think I've taken enough of your time. Once more, thank you and your wife for all the effort uh, you put into the show. The love and care of the show, uh, love and care shows through. How about an interview with the Deveases? Sincerely, and we'll just leave it at Chris because I don't give out people's names unless they tell me they can. Um, Chris, man, that's awesome. I, when I hear somebody say, yeah, I got laid off and I told my boss thank you and I didn't even look for a job, that's what I'm like, see, this is what I'm talking about. That is so freaking awesome. And you're like, I guess you knew that you were in kind of a layoff situation where you could get called back and you just basically say, yo, I'm just going to ride it out. I'm just going to chill. I'm going to stay home with my family. I'm going to enjoy the time off. I'm going to work around the homestead. I'm going to make it more solid. I'm not going to be lazy. I'll go out and do some odd jobs here and there to pay for the you know the essentials and such because I'm prepared. I don't care. See, people, it does happen. It does happen. What if a million people lost jobs and a million people told their boss, thanks a lot, man, and told the system to go screw? And the unemployment rate went up, but nobody really cared, and it didn't destroy families. Wouldn't that be awesome? Chris is showing you the way right there. Uh, the other thing on the Deveases, um, love to have them on. Uh, invitations have been sent multiple times to have them on. If they will come on, they're welcome. I want them. Uh, they are a big inspiration for me. But you folks that know the Dervaises, that have contacts with the Dervaises, start bugging the hell out of Jules for me, man. I want Jules on this show so I can ask him how he does what he does. Because as cool as his videos are, I have some very specific questions to how they do their planning, their soil mixtures, their spacing, and uh, I... Fr- frankly think that they're crazy that they haven't put together a good two-hour instructional DVD that goes through the process from end to end, and I think they could make a lot of money with that if they would put that together. I've even sent them an email offering to pay them so that I could go there and examine everything myself and be on site and, 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 and work with them, and they sent me back a thing that says they don't do tours anymore. I wasn't asked for I offered to pay. Pay the, I think I offered to pay them a day rate of $250 a day for three days out there to examine everything they're doing so I could document it. Uh, and I got turned down by an assistant uh, on that. So um, love to have Jules on. Love to go out on site with them. Uh, that invitation is open both ways. Uh, it's up to you guys that are Derveas fans and connected to the Derveas to tell them, come on, Jack Spirko wants you. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, take another question here then. Okay, this question comes from Tom, and here's what Tom has to say. Tom's like, Jack, I just bought uh, Marlin Model 925 because of your affinity uh, with your Marlin Model 25, and this is the latest version of it. I really like the gun, had it out to the range a few times, and uh, I want to put a scope on it. What should I put on it and why? All right, um, I'll tell you what I have on mine is a uh, Simmons 22 Mag is the model. And I think it's a great scope, and they sell for around thirty-ish dollars. 
and uh, you can't go wrong with it. That said, I'm going to tell you, you put any good quality um, four power fixed four power scope on your 22 rifle. Uh, I'm a firm believer that's the perfect magnification for the 22. And I think that once you've kind of, you know, become proficient with iron sights on the 22, um, you should have a scoped 22. If you're gonna, if you're gonna say, I want to have an iron sighted 22, you know what, go get a really nice little bolt action, uh, or something like that and put a, put a scope on it. And then go get your little semi-automatic and leave it with iron sights and, you know, use the weapon that's appropriate for the environment or get yourself a lever gun and leave iron sights on it or a pump gun and leave iron sights on it. Because I think the rapid follow-up is more useful with iron sights and close-in shooting uh, on things like squirrels. Now, if you want to master the 22, and to me what a 22 master is, is a person that can use that 22 to go out and feed themselves consistently. And can consistently take game at ranges up to 100 yards. That's pretty much the maximum limit of the 20. I know you can shoot it further. And yes, I've gone out in fields and played around at 200 yards and dropped 22 rounds inside the top of a coffee can after playing with it long enough and figuring out what the wind was doing that day. Um, but for day-to-day use, let's be honest, it's a 100-round gun. Um, here's the thing about scopes in general. Uh, hold on, folks. With scopes in general, and sorry about the interruption, I had to kick the dog out of the office. Uh, he's annoying when I'm home. It's going to be uh, something I'm going to have to set up and deal with with the new uh, the new podcasting model in January. But um, with scopes in general, this is the rule you want to follow. Get the lowest magnification sufficient for the job at hand. So since we're only talking 100 yards with the 22, a four-power scope is more than adequate. Due to that fact, that's the kind of the perfect point. The other thing about a four power scope is you can be 15 yards away and still get a pretty decent clear sight picture with a reasonable field of view uh, with 22 rifle. My preference preference is to zero that rifle at 25 yards. It will be just a hair down at 50 yards. It'll be about four inches low with the most ammunition at 100. If you know that, you can you can compensate for it with holdover. Uh, it becomes really clear in the computer in your head where to hold over, how high to hold over. If you go out and practice at ranges, and what you have to do is you have to not practice at ranges like 25, 50, and 100. Go out in the woods and practice at 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, 75, 85, 95, 100 yards. Learn the, because that, that last 50 to 100, you start to get that arc with a 4-inch drop over 50 yards. And you need to learn kind of, at 70, you got to hold over, but not as high as you got to hold over at 100. But it becomes pretty evident if you do that. And a 4-power scope is sufficient for all that. Now, why always the lowest magnification scope that you can possibly have for the job at hand? Why not bring in that big close-up, bring them in type thing? Well, here's the problem with that philosophy. Scopes don't just magnify images, they magnify movement. Let me say that again. Scopes just don't magnify images, they magnify movement. Have you ever sat with, you know, that great big sniper rifle, you know, that your buddy built with a big old 12 or a 16 power scope on it, and you point it way out in the distance, and it looks like you're shaking like a leaf? Why? Because the little tiny twitches and shakes that you do make that reticle dance around the image in the distance because if it's a 16 power scope, your movement is moving 16 times. So lower magnification, you're going to have a steadier view. 
So you only want higher magnifications at distances that require it. And I don't believe that there's many hunting situations for hunters in America that require anything above nine power. So with a big game rifle, I'm a big fan of the three to nine. Uh, three to nine variable. Now why not a three to nine variable on a twenty two? It goes down to three, less than four. You could zoom it up, zoom it down. Because it's not necessary. It, it adds additional weight to the rifle. They weigh more than a fixed four power scope. They're more likely to have failures because they have moving parts and a fixed power does not. And it is almost, irre- you know, inevitable that sooner or later you're going to turn that thing up to eight or nine power because you're playing with it. And next thing you know, you uh, forget about it. Then you're out in the woods and there's a rabbit or a, or a squirrel uh, at, at fifteen or sixteen yards and you try to look at it and it fills the whole scope you can't see it by the time you fix your problem it's gone so don't put the potential for error where there's no reason for it no advantage to it um, the reach way out there for them doesn't exist with the 22 it's a 100 yard gun so being able to dial up to 9 great doesn't really help you if you miss a 75 yard shot at a rabbit with a 22 you'll miss with a with a 3 a 4 power a 9 power a 16 power the scope won't save you it's all about your skill set so that's why I recommend that uh, again, the zeroing distance 25 yards because you're going to shoot most of your game. Uh, you're going to find if you stock woodlands uh, where there's cover in the 15 to 40 yard range, and you're almost a dead line of sight all the way in between those increments with a 25 yard zero. That's why I don't zero at 50 just to bring my my 100 yard drop up two inches. It's easier to hold over on the rear long shot than it is to hold under on the very common close shot. So those are some thoughts on that. Last thing on scopes, another reason to go with lowest power that works is there's something called field of view. If I magnify something uh, a lot and uh, I'm looking close up range, I have a very narrow field of view. In other words, if the, if the, the game animal fills the scope, then I can't see anything around it. This is why you see people with high power scopes going, I can't can't find it. I can't find it. There's some other things there, but it's too deep for today about acquiring sights and bringing the, the, the weapon in between you and the sight picture, but larger fields of view make acquiring the target much easier, so lower magnification, wider field of view, especially at short ranges. So there you go. Good question. Let's take another one. Okay, this question is from Jeremy, and it's one I don't have a full answer for, and maybe somebody in the audience can help. I can just give you some thoughts on it. Uh, Jeremy says, I was wondering if you had any ideas on what GPS would work in the New England winter. Mine is a Magellan Explorers 500, and if it's 20 degrees or colder, it will die and not restart without reprogramming everything. Um, I don't know. I can give you some thoughts. I, I, I mean, my mind immediately goes to Lowrance H2O, which is the handheld unit that I have. I bought mainly because I fish in a boat. And uh, they have the potential to drop it in the water, and this is a watertight unit. You can drop it in the water, it'll float. You can stick it under the water, and no water gets into it. Why would I say that might work for this situation? Because a lot of times when things get really cold, it's moisture inside the electronics that cause the issue. And I'm not sure if that's the case, but obviously with a watertight unit, you mitigate any kind of humidity or moisture that are inside the unit, so that would be one thing. Uh, the other thing is the way that it's carried. You may may need to simply carry this thing um, in a manner that, that keeps it inside and close to your body so that your body heat prevents it from getting down below that 20-degree mark. Now, that doesn't help you for storing it. I know that, but uh, I, I really i am not sure on this one. So does anybody out there, 
put a comment uh, in today's show notes, and we'll make sure that we can help Jeremy here know of a, a handheld portable GPS that doesn't have issues with extreme cold temperatures. Um, again, I just don't know. My only thought is to go with a, a unit that's uh, waterproof, uh, because if you have a waterproof unit, you're going to have less moisture inside the unit, and it should be at some level less affected by the cold. Uh, but again, thesurvivalpodcast.com, look up today's show, comment in the show notes if you have a unit that you use in the cold that you know works well. Uh, I don't get a lot of days below 20 degrees down here in Texas or even in Arkansas, so there's one of my weak points. Hopefully the audience can help you out. Here's a, uh, a tough question. This is, this is kind of tough. It comes from Ryan, and um, it's tough. You'll understand why in a second. Ryan says, Jack, what do you think of shooting bedded animals in survival and non-survival situations? Well, let's start out with the easy part. Uh, shooting a bedded animal, if you get the chance, in a survival situation, shoot it. you got to live. Done. I, I'm not worried about hunting ethics or hunting regulations or hunting laws in a actual survival, if I don't eat, I die situation. Um, in that situation, I'm shooting Tweety birds and blackbirds and crows and anything else I can get my hands on that's got meat on it that I can eat so I can survive. So that's the easy one. Well, let's talk about this a bit, and let's 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 think about this. My initial inclination, and at the times that I, the one time that I've ever had the opportunity to do this, I did not, um, is is to not shoot a bedded animal um, in a hunting situation, just a true sporting situation. For people that don't know, what does he mean by bed? A deer will bed down uh, to sleep, basically. When they bed down, they look an awful lot like a dog when they lay down and go to sleep. They kind of roll up and they sit there. And it's considered unethical to take that shot. And the reason I struggle with that judgment is according to whom. Uh, let me put it to you this way. I've seen a lot more deer standing up than bedded down that I've been within any kind of a, a shooting range to. It's actually quite difficult to get close to a bedded animal. Uh, because they are very alert and they bed in a very specific way so that they can be alerted. So it actually takes a lot of skill to stock up on a bedded deer. An extreme amount of skill, and in some ways more skill than sneaking up on a deer that is up and eating and moving around because they're actually more in tune with what's going on. If you think about it this way, is it easier to sit on a stand and wait for a deer to come to you, maybe less productive, but it's easier because you're the one not moving and you can detect the movement. Or is it easier to stalk through the woods at a deer where you're moving too and they can see you? So a deer that's bedded down is uh, is in an advantage, honestly, over you because you're moving and they're not. All right. Let me tell you how the one that I passed the shot on eventually got up and I shot him. Uh, but how I, I, I just didn't shoot him. Uh, a deer came into kind of a line of sight for me. And it was rifle season. And I could have took the shot. But I was waiting for that, you know, come out from behind the tree type of thing. And next thing I know, he kind of paused the ground a little bit. And I still don't have a clean shot. And next thing, then he, he lays down. Just lays down right there. And uh, it was about 75 yards out. And I could see... Right dead center between his shoulder blades. I could, you know, in the scope, I could see the raised part of his backbone. And I'm like, I can put a bullet right through there, break his back, right through the lungs and heart. He'll never get up. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it because of the ethical 
conundrum there. But the reality was, he got up, he walked a little bit more, I shot him, we still ended up with the same results. The other thing is, when he was sitting down, I would have been absolutely sure of my shot. There was no chance for him to flinch or move, so I would have been guaranteed a humane kill. We're out there to take game. I don't know on this one, really. That I, I, I mean, I personally, because maybe I was taught you don't do it, won't do it. But I wouldn't have a real problem with somebody that did. I would also tell you, the archer that sneaks up on the bedded deer and slips an arrow in from 20 yards or less away, and that deer never knew he was there, I can't fault that, because that takes a level of skill that's unimaginable. And I think there is a tendency for people to come up with these rules about hunting with with some level of ignorance, and they don't really understand uh, the fundamentals that are going on there. So, I, I don't know. I, it's one of those things that's like an old prejudice that I won't let go of, but I understand why it's silly to a degree. Um... Yeah, especially with the bow. In fact, I'll tell you that if I ever got that opportunity with the bow, I would take the shot. I would be proud of that shot. Because that is, I mean, it's one thing to be able to be out 100 yards away glassing, see an animal bedded down, and take a shot. It's another thing to be able to then close the distance to that bedded animal without alerting them to your presence. And um, I don't know. I, it, really, when you think about it, we take a shot at a deer standing, and we take a shot at a deer laying down. What is really the difference? They don't sleep the way we do, folks. They're not sitting there in REM, oblivious to everything, with no chance to survive. It's the same engagement, really. But, yeah, it's there. Here's where I think it comes from. Shotgunners have a code of ethics with birds. We don't shoot birds out of trees. We don't shoot birds off the ground. We shoot birds on the wing. I am a big fan of that code of ethics with a shotgun, especially, again, hunting for hunting sake, for sporting sake, food for the table, fine, you, you follow that ethic. But if I'm out in the woods, and I'm lost, and I can't get home, or the shit has hit the fan, and I'm, if I don't bring meat home tonight, we're not going to eat, and there's a grouse sitting in a tree looking at me, I'm not scaring him out of that roost. I'm going to blow him out of the tree, and I'm going to make damn sure that he goes home with me. And there are those two different worlds, and I think that that concept of not shooting roosted birds somehow got carried over into the big game world and all I'm telling you is after let's see what is this now this would be 27 years in the field pursuing big game 27 years I've actually seen a bedded deer that I could have shot once and I've seen a hell of a lot more standing up that I could have shot and have shot and chose not to shoot and you know the whole gamut of that so the, the the mythology that that's actually an easier thing, this is an interesting question, so why I said it's difficult, it makes me think, is to me a myth. And I would ask you, if you have strong feelings about this, how many deer have you shot in your life? How many deer could you have shot that were bedded? I'll bet you the numbers bear out what I'm saying here. And maybe it's time to rethink this rule that doesn't exist in any law that I know of. Now, birds in a tree? Totally different scenario. Um, there is less sport in that. Uh, but, again, if you have to feed yourself, I wouldn't fault you for it. Uh, and if you're hunting with a twenty two rifle, you know, in a survival situation or small game hunting, and you get a shot, and see, there's another one. How do we, how do we justify this? I see the grouse in the tree. Grouse are in season. It's a legal shot. I'm out with my 12-gauge shotgun. I'm supposed to stand under the tree and whistle and hoot and make that bird fly and shoot him on the wing. 
because it's the ethical thing to do as a shotgunner. If I happen to be out there with a 22 bouncing around, mainly looking for squirrels, and I see the grouse, and I take the shot, and I clip his head, and I drop him to the ground, everybody goes, wow, that's a great shot. Sure, the shot with the shotgun's easier, but isn't it really the same thing? I don't know. It's up for you to decide. There's nothing illegal about it. I can tell you that I still carry some of the stigma myself uh, in both situations, but when I really analyze it, it's hard to justify the stigma. Let's take another call. Okay, lots of gun and hunting stuff today here, folks. Uh, we got another one from Andy. Andy says, as part of our preparations, I'm looking to pur- purchase a new pump-action shotgun and a bolt-action rifle. I'm thinking about a Remington Model 870 shotgun and a Remington 700 bolt-action rifle. Probably in 306 or 303, and I think he probably meant 308, and that was a typo. I hear that Remington statistically sells more shotguns than Winchester and Mossberg combined. I hear Remington has gone to an aluminum receiver, whereas Winchester has increased co- quality. Which brand of shotgun would you endorse and why? What caliber of rifle would you recommend for distance shooting for a large man, six foot two and 230 pounds, and why? Okay, good questions. Uh, let's start out with the shotgun. I don't think you can go wrong uh, with the 870 shotgun. If uh, you don't like the new receivers, then there are about a billion of uh, the older 870 models available out there. And uh, go find a used one uh, at a pawn shop or a gun shop or a gun shop. You won't have any trouble finding them, and it is my favorite shotgun. That said, I have nothing uh, bad to say about when we start talking about used guns, uh, Winchester Model 12s, Winchester Model 25s, uh, the Ithaca guns, the the Mossberg guns. There's not a bad American-made shotgun out there. There really isn't. They're all great guns. So what I advise you to do is take a trip down to your local gun store, and both used and new, Take some time with the pump shotguns and feel them. Find the gun that fits you best. Um, I'm going to recommend that if you can find what you know, you can find this. Look for a gun with a 26-inch barrel. Most shotguns today are sold with 28-inch barrels. When you talk about a sporting shotgun, and I, I think that's what you're looking for here. If you're not, it's what I recommend uh, as a first shotgun because you have a dual-purpose gun. Uh, you can have that nice, slicked-up, black tactical uh, 870 or Mossberg 500 or whatever, and uh, it's great for tactical use, uh, but if you put the same rounds in it uh, that, uh, that you put in an 870, they have the same terminal effect on a human being uh, if you use it for self-defense. And, uh, again, I always thought that there was uh, some advantage to not having a tactical-looking shotgun for basic home defense. Not shit hit the fan, not we're having to defend our homes on a daily basis, but random guy breaks in, you shoot him because he broke in your house, and you give the DA that's uh, got a hard-on against gun owners up his ass uh, uh, less uh, to work with. So... Uh, with that, but the reason I go with a 26-inch barrel is if you're going to go hunting, you're going to find that the extra two inches of barrel length on a 28-inch barrel don't really give you a whole lot of advantage in the field. I uh, give you a little bit longer sight plane that tends to make marksmanship just a little bit better, but not really perceptibly. Um, any velocity advantage or anything like that at that length with a shotgun is is inconsequential. Stepping back to a 26-inch barrel, you get a nice balance point on a pump. Uh, it's a lot easier to move in and out of, of woods and bushes with that two inches less length. There's a little bit less weight. So it's why I recommend that if you can find it. And I wouldn't have a problem with one with a 24-inch barrel. In fact, I have one that I kind of went and bought the barrel separately just so I could do that. Uh, so there's my recommendation on the shotgun. On the rifle, um, I would recommend that you buy... Um, 
whatever bolt action rifle that you really want. I would do the same thing. There is nothing wrong with a modern Model 70. There is nothing wrong with a modern Model 700. There is certainly nothing wrong with the older variants of both of them. Um, they're both exceptional rifles. And I cannot, for the life of me, uh, tell you, other than personal preference, why you really should buy one over the other. If we think about it from the standpoint of pricing, they're competitively priced because they're, they're head-to-head competitors. Uh, if we think about it, caliber availability, there's, you know, the 300, you know, all these new super magnum things and all, leave that out because if one has something the other doesn't, there's an equivalent. Um, but if we look at the standard calibers, uh, the 270, the, the, the 280, the 306, it's, the 308s, the 243s, it's all there. It's all there on both sides. The accuracy, both of them will shoot more accurately than the average rifleman. If you're, if you're buying a gun and it's a new, and you're new to guns, you, the gun will shoot better than you. I can almost guarantee you that. On the caliber, let's take a little bit of your arrogance back. Um, I'm not really calling you arrogant, but it, it comes across that way. And understand that I, I understand that text is the lowest form of communication. You may not have meant it this way. But I, I'm taking you on your question to be somewhat of a novice with guns and not maybe have a lot of experience shooting guns. If I'm wrong about that, I'm sorry. That's how your question reads there, uh, bud. And uh, because of that, I'm going to tell you that you may want to look at something with a little less recoil, even if you are six foot two and 230 pounds. I can show you eight-year-old kids that can go out and shoot hot-loaded 30.06s all day long and have no problem with it because they have proper form and they're relaxed. A lot of times a big guy that has improper form will take recoil a lot harder than a, than a thin, a lean person because you have more body weight resistance to absorb the blow, so you hold it and you take it, bam, right on the, right on the shoulder and the chin harder than somebody that's loose and flexible. Um, so I wouldn't even factor your size and weight into your caliber selection at all. I think that would be short-sighted. What do you want to do with the rifle? If this is going to be a rifle for hunting up to deer-sized game and taking long-distance shots as a defensive weapon, boy, you can't go wrong with a 243. 243, you can shoot deer and uh, you know antelope-sized game out to 350, 400 yards. Uh, the recoil is almost insignificant. Very easy to learn to shoot. Uh, a tad light for things like elk, and if you live way up north, bigger white tail, it's a little bit of a light gun for that. Uh, you might want to step up to something like a 2506 at that point, but don't shy away, or a 260. I mean, a 260 is basically a civilian version of the 6.5 millimeter Swede. That's an outstanding round. So that 243, 260 uh, may be very good for a new rifle shooter if you are, in fact, a new rifle shooter. 3006, zero wrong with that. Uh, you're going to deal with more recoil, um, but you have a much more flexible weapon. This is a weapon that you could take successfully out and hunt black bear, elk, moose with. But if you're not going to hunt black bear, elk, and moose, if you don't live where those animals are, then there's nothing wrong with coming down a little bit, and you're actually going to find that your long-distance shooting is going to be more effective uh, with uh, things like the, the, the 243. Another one I'll throw at you is the 7mm 08, one of the most underrated rounds on the planet uh, for 300-yard shooting and back. It, it really is. Um, 
I don't have a problem with somebody taking the 308 out on an elk or the 7 millimeter 08 out on an elk hunt. Uh, plenty of people have put a lot of elk down with that round. It's it's a slightly uh, more powerful round than seven millimeter Mauser, which Jack O'Connor loved, and his wife took several elk with. So uh, those are all good rounds. That whole family of three oh eight children. Uh, again, two forty three, two sixty, and seven millimeter oh eight. Sorry, I'm not drilling it down to you now. If you are a good rifle shot and you want the most flexible, most versatile. Uh, center fire uh, caliber out there without going magnum crazy it is the 3006 um, very small advantage over the 308 but it's there uh, the the length of the bolt to me and the, the slightly longer action and the like the half ounce of additional weight between a short and long action is inconsequential uh, put me in that that place and I'll buy the 3006 every time it is my individual favorite rifle round you should have no le- uh, trouble learning to shoot it well but if you are a new rifle shooter Please get a mentor. It'll help you not just with safety, but with form. It'll make your results so much better. Um, the form and the head are the most important things. If you watch a person shoot and you see their head way tilted to the side, down to the stock, that's totally wrong and you're never going to shoot well that way. You need to learn how to shoot with your head 90 degrees off your body, just slightly canted and t- tied into that stock. That is the most important fundamental of marksmanship that gets ignored. And before you go buy the gun, learn what your dominant eye is. I don't care if you're right-handed. If you have a left-dominant eye, you're never going to shoot well right-handed. How do you determine your dominant eye? Hold your hand, uh, your hand, your arm straight out in front of your face with your thumb up. Put your thumb over something in the distance, a flower pot, a tree, a mark on the wall, something that's at least 10 to 20 yards away from your thumb. Close your right eye, close your left eye. When you close one of your eyes and the thumb looks like it moves The eye you're closing is your dominant eye. If that happens to be your left eye, you have to learn to shoot left-handed. That's what the military teaches you, and that's what every good solid rifle coach teaches you because you're never going to shoot well with your passive eye, not as well as you could with your dominant. It's easier to overcome uh, the dexterity issues with your hands. So this is more than you've asked, but if you are a new rifle shooter, and I know we have a lot of new people out there that are going out and buying their first guns, these are things you have to consider, so I try to make this more applicable to everybody. But again, folks, don't think because I'm a big man, I need a big caliber. right? I'm a big dude. I'm over six foot. I'm well over 200 pounds. And uh, you don't see me uh, turning my nose up at something with the class that the 260 Remington has. I think it's a fabulous round. The 243 is a beautiful round. And they all have different kind of niches that they fill in different purposes. And what you have to, again, ask yourself is, what will this rifle be used for? Because it's a tactical rifle. The 243 is freaking phenomenal. Absolutely freaking phenomenal. Big step up from the 223, low recoil, long distance, flat shooting, multiple uh, multiple weights of bullets that are available for multiple things. Uh, it's a, it's a, even a good varmiting round with very lightweight bullets. Just a fabulous gun. So don't get myopic because I'm a big guy. Think about the the application of the rifle because I can teach a 95-pound woman to shoot a 30.06 just fine. And I can teach a 250-pound man to shoot a 30.06 just fine. But what really matters is when that bullet goes downrange, what job are you asking it to do? How far away do you want it to be able to do that job? And what is the intended purpose of the rifle? So, great question. Lots of things to think about there. Let's take another one. Okay, so this question 
actually came to me as a PM on the forum, and the guy said, I understand if you don't want to do it on the show, you can just do it directly to me. I think this is actually a great question for the show, so we'll do it here. This comes from a person that we'll just call Jane. Here's what Gene says. Hope you're doing well today. I'd like to ask your opinion on a business startup I've been considering for a few years. Do you think aquaponics is a system that has a sustain, that has sustainable products for the employment market? I've been in computers for nearly 25 years, and I've found I have run my course with them. But as someone once said, everyone has to eat. I'm trying to get myself into startup mode. I do wonder about the viability of this employment prospect. I have a number of ideas, but no longer, in, but no experience in management or development, and I wonder how best to move forward. I do have a company local to me, which I'm looking to form a relationship with, which could be an excellent place to start. Thank you for your opinion and your time. I realize your day is quite busy with TSP and regular projects. I appreciate your insight. Okay, um, here, here's how I feel about this, Gene. The, the word that bugs me there, it just bugs me, um, with a mindset is employment. Employment. To me, employment means I'm going to go work for somebody. And what I don't want you to do is go take, you know, go find a course in aquaponics to take and go take that course, put it on a resume, and then go out and start looking for jobs in a job market. Because I, you know, the first thing I would tell you, if you're even thinking about working for somebody else in aquaponics, either building systems or running systems, is to go out and see what is on the market today. Who's there? And I looked at the company, you talked about a relationship, but they look like they have some really cool stuff, but they're not an aquaponics operation. They, they just have some things that maybe an aquaponics operation and many other agricultural uh, endeavors would use. So these aren't guys that are out putting in systems for people and building systems, and they're not uh, uh, an ongoing operation that's producing produce and then selling it. So when I hear employment, I think of working for one of those two types of companies. So before you invest anything in the education, if you're thinking that way, verify that it's there. Verify that there's a job for you if you have a certain level of education first. You may very well find that it would be easier for you to go apprentice for somebody like that if they're already out there, uh, maybe starting out doing it on weekends. So as you can say, you can still eat while you're learning your craft or your trade. To me, if I'm going to go into aquaponics as a, a profession, it's a very entrepreneurial thing. It's, it's, I'm either going to become a master of the installation of systems or a master of, uh, of running my own systems on my own piece of property. Now, the thing is, with aquaponics done right, especially with kind of a greenhouse that you can open and close down at different times of the year, you can grow a tremendous amount of food and fish in a very small area. Um, a typical suburban backyard, if you filled it up like the Dervaises did, you could probably outproduce them with aquaponics because you're also producing a protein source, fish, something like tilapia. And I've, I've read on aquaponics forums where people get their own tilapia spot. And they basically keep a couple fish tanks in the house with pairs of tilapia. And the, they let the tilapia spawn, and then they take the, the spawn out and put it in their tanks, and they grow out their fish that way. They don't even buy the, the, uh, the fish. They're breeding their own their own fingerlings, and they're actually selling off some fingerlings to others, and then they're growing some to fruition and selling them for meat, and then they're selling the produce. Here's the, the, the kick in the ass, though. How much market is there for your produce and your fish in your local community? You need to establish the market is there and what the market rates are before you invest in this type of production system. All right. So that would be one method. I think it's solid, but you're going to have to learn some things about business management, business ownership, the investment in your business, how much more work you have to do early on in your business, and above all, marketing. 
If you're going to make this thing a success, you're going to have to market the hell out of this business in that standpoint. And that's the thing that kills most local uh, growers. They don't market themselves. They go down the farmer's market and maybe get a booth, and that's it. You have to really market yourself. You have to call up every restaurant and go, look, I can deliver. You know, Look at the, the video of what the Nerveases do. Uh, I'll put a link to that in today's show notes. But you can emulate that a little bit. They have local restaurants that they deliver food. So the guy calls them up and says, I need four and a half pounds of salad greens today, mixed greens. And they bring it out. They cut it and they bring it out. And it's there like 20 minutes after they cut it. It's like the chef has his own backyard garden. And they only buy what they need as they need it because they're local. That model is so powerful. And your margins are going to be so much higher than trying to sell organic greens to the local supermarkets and things like that. So, And also having where consumers can come and buy directly from you. You market that. Now you've got something. Guy comes in. I'd like some fish tonight. They're in there. How many do you want? You pull them out flipping. Whip out an electric fillet knife. Buzz them off. Here's a pound of fillets. Give me $9 or whatever it is. Because people will pay more for that if you market it effectively. So that's one business model with aquaponics. The other business model would be come up with two model systems. We'll call them small and large. And one would be, you know, kind of a small greenhouse-based system, and the other one is a slightly larger greenhouse-based system. You have to find out your dimensions for that, but I wouldn't go too big right away. Come up with every fitting, every piece, every component, everything needed to build that system from the ground up. Go out and market that you go to people's houses and set up their system for them. And you do everything, you know, you have kind of like... Excuse me, let's say let's, let's say three packages. Package one is I come out, I build the greenhouse, I show you how it works, where to open it at different times of year, I put in automatic levers for times of year when it needs to be closed down, but it might need to be vented for heat, I put in your pumps, I put in your tanks, I put in your gravel bed, uh, I get everything ready to go, and basically you have pristine gravel beds, pristine water, everything flowing, complete knowledge of how your system works, and I walk away. You, you put your own fish in, you plant it, there's a price for that. Package two is, I come in, I get your fish going for you, I get your water levels, I come back several times, it's going to be a lot more expensive to do this, but there's margin in it, right? I come back, I put your fish in, I get your water balance right, and I tell you when it's time to start planting. And I tell, give you kind of a list of things to plant, and then it's turnkey and I walk away. And then a the third model is, I bring your fish, I get your water right, I plant your plants, I run your operation for you. I charge you a weekly maintenance fee to come out there. You're expected to do a few things, but basically I run your operation for you. In return for this, you pay to build the system, you get all the food you can eat out of your system, and I get all the surplus to sell into the market. Something like that. Those are different models that you could emulate. There's, a, I think it's called Urban Farmer up in Oregon or Washington where a couple ladies do this with gardens. They go out and they put gardens in for people. They charge the people to put the gardens. They charge them for the plants. The people get a certain amount of food, and then they get a little bit from every garden plot. So they're running 100 gardens maybe, and they're only taking 5% of the production from 100 gardens, but they have a huge amount of produce that they're selling into local markets, and they're kind of sharecropping that way. So there's all kinds of ways you can do this, but when I hear employment, I don't hear entrepreneurship. I hear employee, and it's very natural for someone that's been an employee their entire life to think that way when they make a career switch. If you can find a place to work, great. Even if you want to own your own place, working for somewhere first would be great. But I think you'll find that anybody out there doing aquaponics today as a business is not really going to care that you have some kind of certification course or something like that. Uh, if they believe that you will do the job well, they know that the, the things that you have to learn are not that complicated. 
and they know that you'll come into their business and learn very quickly. So maybe if you're going to take an employment aspect, you go at it from, a, hey, can I start for you part-time? You get a look at me, I get a look at you. I'll work for you on Saturdays for free for two months, and then you tell me whether or not you think that I'm going to fit into your business and whether we can make a go of this together, something like that. But it scares me to hear employment with things like aquaponics. Because I just don't think there's a... If you go to the jobs.com boards or whatever, there's not a lot of people, aquaponics engineer required. Uh, and it's going to take that industry being built by entrepreneurs first before that employment market uh, will exist. And that's just reality. So uh, that's true, and not just in aquaponics, folks. And so many things that are alternative in nature. You could do the same thing with rainwater harvesting. Uh, any type of agriculture. You could do it with permaculture. Think about getting a good permaculture design course under your belt because you need that. If you're because permaculture is so complex, and then you, what you say is, I'll come into your property. You pay for all the plants, all the trees, and a certain hourly rate that will will make somewhere effective, and I'll create a living ecosystem that's a food production paradise on your property. In return, my maintenance fee is X and ten percent of production, or five percent of production. And after you have about fifty or sixty good quality customers. You have more food than you could probably sell. You probably wouldn't even take your full 10% from everybody or even your full 5% for everybody. But it's a long-term business model. You have to charge enough to make it that far. But you think about it as a prepper. Now I've got 30, 40, 50, 60 families in my community that can feed themselves that I'm connected to. If the shit hits the fan, I'm in a pretty good situation. So be creative as an entrepreneur in these things. But a lot of them, you know... Uh, people that want to become wild crafters with herbs and all. This is all self-employment stuff. And there's a lot of advantage to that, but there's disadvantage. You don't get benefits, and you don't get an employer paying half your Social Security, and, and all the other you know things that we come to expect as employees that we now see as rights. But there's a hell of a lot more freedom in it. So I really suggest you look at it. Now, the other thing to do is work your ass off at your job. Make as much money as you can. Take additional projects. Live like you're poor even when you're making the good salary. Stockpile as much money as you can. Buy that piece of property. Pay it off. Pay off the car. Have no debt. And then if you go make $20,000 a year doing aquaponics, you really don't give a shit, do you? Because you're happy. You're doing what you like. But since this is new to you, go build the first step for you. Build yourself a little mini system at home. Go get yourself a few of uh, those big blue barrels and build one in your backyard or in your house or in your garage with grow lights. I don't know. You know, something like that. Look up barrel ponics. Build a little system. See if you really like this or if it's just an idea in your head. Because if you're going to follow something and change your career path, you better have passion for it. And you're not going to know until you try it. So go try it. See if there's somebody to apprentice with and then go from there. But stop thinking like an employee because it's going to get you killed in this type of a marketplace. Uh, and I think that's true for everybody. you got to start seeing yourself self-employed even if you still have a job. Okay, Brian asked me a question about reloading rimfire. He said uh, he didn't think you could reload 22 rimfire ammunition, but apparently you can because his buddy says so. Uh, is his buddy full of crap or is this true? Well, you can do anything. Uh, my dad used to say, I'd say, Dad, can I do this? And he'd say, well, you can fry a turd and eat it, can't you? Doesn't mean you should. Um, there's no financial uh, advantage to reloading a twenty two uh, rifle. It could be done. Of course it could. All you would need is something that does a decent job of reforming the brass, uh, a source of primer paste, uh, run the primer paste into the rim, uh, drop in your charge, uh, drop in a bullet and uh, some type of crimp tool, and done. 
And I guess if we ever ended up in a real shit at the fan, it might be a valuable skill to know. That said, I think it's quite dangerous uh, to manually prime with a primer paste. It's not like pushing a primer into a center fire. Um, it was done for a long time back in the days of like 44 caliber rimfire, and it was a little bit easier to do with the bigger case. Uh, so it, it can be done. It just it doesn't it doesn't really have a practical application today. If you said I want to shoot um, something equivalent to the 22 and I want to reload, I'd say go buy a 22 Hornet and load it down a bit. Load it with 40 grain bullets, the cheapest you can get. Uh, drop back a little bit on your charge weight into you know somewhere around the 22 Magnum uh, velocity range, or even a little bit further down, and you've basically got a 22 long rifle you can reload. And it's cheap to reload, and that would be cheaper today than buying 22 long rifle ammunition, probably, or damn close. And then the nice thing would be you could always have kind of your full power rounds, and you extend your range out with a 22 Hornet to about 200 yards. So, so if you wanted to do it at all. Now, what purpose do 22 shell cases serve? Um, there are tools where you can get a whole bunch of 22 brass and basically make bullets out of them uh, for firing in something like a 22 Hornet or a 223, a jacketed bullet. What this machine does is it basically shapes the shell casing into a bullet cup. And then you get lead that comes in basically, it looks like a big long string, and you cut it. And you put it into that cup, and then you form it, and it makes a reasonable uh, varmint bullet, uh, a pretty decent one. You can make those bullets dirt cheap. So if I had a whole bunch of twenty-two brass I had access to, and I had a whole bunch of free time, and I wasn't busy like I am, and I was uh, looking for something to do that's kind of creative and, and financially advantageous, I might invest in that equipment. For me... You know, Dogtown bullets, which are the 22s that I use for reloading, uh, the 22 bullets that I use for reloading from Midway, they're dirt cheap. Uh, and uh, they do everything that I need uh, for that type of plinking and shooting and varmint hunting. So I- I'm not going to do that. But there is something you could do with 22 brass that actually makes sense. But reloading it, yes, you can. Uh, no, you probably should not. Uh, you know what? We have a lot of gun questions today. Let's finish up with one more. This guy's name is Tim. Tim says, hey, Jack, what do you think about building your own AR? I have started to read up a little bit on it, buying an upper complete with barrel and lower parts kit, assembling, etc. Uh, it seems you can build your own and save a few hundred dollars. It seems uh, that much of the savings comes from not having to incur federal excise tax. So my questions are, one, is this really the case regarding the tax? And two, given your firearms experience, what do you think of the whole build-your-own route as a way to go? Um, it is true. You do save money. And you have people with totally different opinions on it. Since I've not done it, I can only tell you what the opinions are. Our boy Dan Tanner uh, on the forum, Big Dan, has uh, a whole forum thread, if I can find it, on why you shouldn't do it. And basically all the headaches he went through building his own AR. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's his opinion, and that's how it worked out for him. In his thread, and I'll see if I can find it. I don't know if I can. This is an old thread. Really old thread. You have all kinds of people chiming in saying, I did it and I had great results. What you're dealing with, though, is you're buying two different pieces and components and putting them together that weren't specifically designed for each other. So that's where some of the issues come from. I say, you know what, um, based on Dan's experience, if I was in the market for a new AR, I probably would just buy one made and I would pay the federal government the freaking money. But I hate that. I love not paying the federal government money when I don't have to. So it would push me toward building my own, and almost out of spite. 
And what I would do is I would look up, I'd go to AR15.com, which is probably the best forum in the world to ask questions like this. And I would look for the build your own threads. And I know there's tons of them there. And I would look and I would emulate the components that were successful. And it may be that Dan's issues were that he used component X and Y and maybe he should have used A and C. You know, I really don't know. My view on this is I'm not a huge AR fan. Uh, I have one. And uh, I like it, and it's there, and it has a purpose, and, and that's that. Uh, so I'm not as big into the AR, maybe, as a lot of people would expect me to be because I run the survival podcast that I talked about. I talk about everything from saving food to very tactical things. Um, so I, I have to give you my, my limited uh, knowledge answer on that one there. But what I can tell you is not paying the feds their money is absolutely true. There's quite a bit of savings in that. And uh, due to that fact, it's probably something we should do. And we should uh, find out exactly how to do it. Now, here's what I've always wondered. Why can't one manufacturer and uh, manufacture uh, the gun together and then sell it separately? So they, they, they call it matched components, uh, but you buy one and then a week later buy the other. I don't know. I guess I probably would close that loophole if we tried to do it, but... Uh, that's my suggestion that you go out and find the components that have worked well for others and give it a go if you're going to make the investment in it. Um, as for why I'm not the, the biggest fan of the AR, because I'm a really big fan of the AK. Um, I just see it as a more reliable weapon. And at defensive ranges, um, I don't think there's a, uh, a big advantage to the AR. Now, I know I'm going to get a lot of bashing for that, but that's a debate, guys. Let it go. It'll never end. That's that's my feeling. Uh, if you want ultimate reliability in a weapon, the AK is the way to go. It's a cheaper weapon. It's not as accurate. It has slop in it. But when we talk about ranges out to 100 yards, I can hit man-sized targets just as well as you can with your AR. And I make a bigger hole. And I know that if my weapon gets full of mud, it's still going to work. This was on Deadliest Warrior, by the way. They had the Svesnok troops versus the Green Berets. And they smudged mud into the AK. They poured water down the barrel. They did the same thing with the M16, which is the military equivalent of the AR. They just mudded up both of these weapons. The AK functioned flawlessly. The AR functioned better than I thought it would. It got off about four rounds before it jammed up, which was more than I expected. Um, but there's that rock-solid reliability of the AK. So that's my preference for a tactical weapon, and, and that federal excise tax savings isn't there for you. But the, the cost of a quality AK is generally less than the quality AR. So uh, there's my final thoughts on guns for the day. And, folks, I know we had a lot of firearms questions today. That's different. We shift it up, but it's all about what you guys ask. If you want to hear your question read and answered on the air, consider sending me an email, jack at com. Put in the subject line, question for Jack, and I will try to get it on the air. I'll do my best. Please try not to write me a book. There's some of these questions I just haven't gotten around to because they're too long. You, you get, people give me their whole life story. Give me the, If you want to give me your life story, give me your question, and then say a little more details. And if I want, I'll go down there and get the information. But give me your question in two to three sentences, and you're going to have a lot better chance of doing this. Remember, you can also call your questions in. I'll be doing a lot of those coming in January, so you can start stacking them up now. The phone number to do that with is 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, and we'll try to get your call on the air. And with that, I'm going to wrap up today. Again, folks, remember the big thing here. My opinions are just that through opinions. They're based on as much fact as I have, and I've even given you some stuff today that I'm like, I really don't know. Can you help? This is a community. 
This is about collective intelligence. So when I don't know something, bring it to the table. When you disagree, bring it to the table. If you disagree, don't be surprised if I disagree back. If I tell you you're completely wrong, I might even be wrong and tell you that. It's because I have strong opinions, and most people in this world do. But when it comes down to it at the end of the day, we can take all the opinions away, and we take certain facts and certain realities. And those facts and realities are that we are at risk on a daily basis. No matter how pretty the sun is shining, no matter how good they say the stock market's doing, good times and bad, we're always at risk. There's always things that can go wrong, and we need to have contingency plans in place for man-made disasters, natural disasters, and above all, personal disasters, like the, the person that I shared with you earlier today who got laid off from their job, and it didn't really affect them. We need to be prepared for that more than anything else. And you do that your way with your plan and your model, and you'll be taking the right steps. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.